Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. We have been dealing with this uh, introduction to the birth of Jesus. We've seen uh, Luke's own introduction to Theophilus, telling him that he is writing this book of Luke, this gospel, the story of Christ, so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things he had been taught. And that, of course, is a message to us as well. Then we saw the birth of John the Baptist being foretold, uh, beginning in verse 5, this wonderful uh, prophecy that comes first to um, Zechariah, who doesn't exactly pass the test in the way we would want him to. Though faithful, he, he doubts the angel Gabriel's pronouncement that he and his wife would have a child. And then we see how Mary passes sort of with flying colors. Not that she understands how it all will happen, but she believes the word of the Lord through Gabriel. And this morning we continue to see uh, the faith of Mary and Elizabeth when they meet together, both pregnant, one with John the Baptist and the other with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's read beginning at verse 39 of Luke chapter 1, God's holy and errant inspired word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And we thank God for his word and ask him to help us to understand its truths this morning. Well, we have a, a text that deals with the testimony of two mothers-to-be. They're pregnant with, again, Elizabeth. John has John the Baptist growing in her womb. She is now, you can see, about... Uh, uh, she, she comes to visit Mary here, goes to visit Elizabeth uh, well into her pregnancy. And Mary is just beginning her own. And we have two sort of speeches given. Um, Elizabeth's may not be really a song, even though it's often considered one of the songs of Christmas. Uh, but Mary's most definitely is a poetic song, almost a hymn that she that she recites. And what we will see in this text is the witness of Elizabeth and John the Baptist in her womb, 
to the announcement of Jesus Christ coming into the world. And then Mary's witness to that same wonderful miracle that is happening within her. And these two announcements um, coming on the, the heels of Gabriel's own announcements to these two families combine really into a whole testimony to the action of God in initiating this new era of redemption, the new covenant that is coming. That the old is, is now transitioning to the new. And with John and Jesus, God's salvation has indeed descended onto a fallen world. And in a real sense, John the Baptist witnessed to Jesus, surpassing him, Jesus' own ministry surpassing that of John the Baptist's, begins not in the wilderness, not at Jesus' baptism, but begins right here in his womb. Because, strangely, this is the first time they connect. This is the first time they meet, in a weird way. The divine Son of God made flesh in the womb of Mary, meeting with the prophetic voice of John the Baptist, who can't even wait to be born, uh, to share his excitement over the coming of the Messiah, so much so that he leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. So Elizabeth becomes, in a weird way, sort of a, a, an Old Testament prophetess and joins her son John, who will, uh, once he is born, even though now un, still unborn, accepts his God-ordained role as the prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah to come and deliver the nation. Our characters are, again, Elizabeth, the wife of a priest named Zechariah, who is a representative, if we think of it, as the, of the Old Testament and of the Old Covenant. And Mary is the wife of a village carpenter, the one who, through the baby in her womb, ushers in the New Testament, the New Covenant. And at this point, the old and the new sort of meet in these two families. The New, Testament, the new Covenant doesn't blot out the old, nor does it supersede it, but it fulfills it. And John pointing the way for the Messiah is the, uh, the final fulfillment of these things. Those promises and blessings which had been seen in shadow in the Old Testament are now brought into sharp focus and they become a reality for us in Jesus Christ here in the New Testament. So let's just look at the three. There's kind of three movements to this story. We find Mary going for this visit in which they have this encounter. We have Mary singing this song and then we see her going back home and that's kind of the way we'll, we'll divide up the text. So let's think about Mary's visit to see Elizabeth first of all. As soon, it seems, as Mary had received the angel's message, she hurries away to the hill country of Judea. Well, we know that Elizabeth has, been, has conceived and kept herself hidden for five months, and it's in the sixth month that the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary. We see that back in verse 26, and it seems that this is coming right on the edge of that. They stay, and, and uh, Mary is there with Elizabeth for about three months, so if you take the announcement of Mary's own pregnancy, miraculous pregnancy, her, the virgin pregnancy and conception of Jesus in her womb, taking place about six months after Elizabeth's conception, and Mary staying with Elizabeth for three months, well, six plus three is nine, so even depending on when exactly she got pregnant and how long her term was, it doesn't leave a lot of room for Mary to have dilly-dallied, right, in getting to see her cousin, right? It seems as though just as soon because we're told that in those days she went with haste in verse 39. Well, we don't have the picture of her kind of sitting around for a month and all of a sudden with haste going to see her. We get the sense of almost immediately upon hearing the news of uh, her own miraculous pregnancy and hearing the news of her cousin Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy, 
that she immediately goes uh, to visit her. And so as soon as she receives this message, she turns to the hill country of Judea. Now again, we don't know exactly where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. It was in the south country within easy reach of Jerusalem because Zechariah as a, high, as a high priest would have been working in the temple a lot uh, or in the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem. And so he would have needed to be able to get there relatively quickly. Um, but their house was in the countryside. It, they didn't live in Jerusalem proper, which means that it would have been pretty secluded. Anywhere from about 70 to 100 miles, people speculate, but we don't really know. Um, but a, a significant distance away from Nazareth, regardless. And while Mary was there, in this secluded, peaceful place, uh, she begins to meet with her relative Elizabeth, who, uh, and, and they would have had days of quiet spending the time together. And Elizabeth, you remember, up to this point, is secluding herself away from the village. She is hiding herself until Mary, in fact, comes. This is kind of the, the end of her seclusion. This would have been a place where the prodding questions of the, of the neighbors would have been kept at bay. So it would have been good not only for Elizabeth, but it would also, I think, have been good for Mary at the beginning of her uh, unusual and miraculous pregnancy. Well, whatever the people of Nazareth had said or thought, Mary found faith in Judea. There she would be believed. Uh, Elizabeth didn't have any hesitation in accepting that Mary was to be the mother of the Messiah. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, we're told that the baby leaped in her womb. And clearly, because this is written for us, she at some point in this interaction realizes that this is no ordinary kick of a baby, but this is a leaping for joy in her womb at the announcement of who was before her. Not only does Elizabeth receive Mary, but the unborn John leaped for joy at the presence of the unborn Christ. Now again, if you're like me, you, you ask all sorts of questions and we're curious about all kinds of Bible trivia that, we're, that the Bible just doesn't give us, right? Mary's journey, how long was it? Where exactly did they live? How old exactly was Mary? We know she was very young, likely a teenager. Uh, did her family allow her to go alone? That seems unlikely. Would they admit all the possible hazards and dangers, not send someone with her? Did Joseph accompany her? Did another relative accompany her? Did she hook up with some kind of a caravan going south? Because these things were sort of common. We simply don't know, and apparently none of this really matters, because if it did matter, Luke would have told us, right? But Luke doesn't satisfy those curiosities. He tells us what he tells us for very specific reasons. And what he tells us is really about these two speeches that dominate the passage, and from those two uh, expressions of these two women, we can deduce that, well, they weren't talking about trivialities, at least not at first, but immediately began to think about the Savior and the implications of what was happening to them. And we can't help but notice, I think, right at the outset, that there is this urgency for fellowship between these two women. Mary goes off in haste again toward Judah. Gabriel's words back in verse 36 were likely all that Mary knew about Elizabeth's situation. But that was motivation enough. This, of course, has some parallels to 1 Samuel 1, when where Elkanah, the husband of Hannah, is from the hill country of Ephraim, by the way. And the fact that she hurries there is, is not due to shame for her pregnancy, but due to her desire to please and obey God and congratulate Elizabeth and share her good news that they're connected with. And so when Mary arrives, Elizabeth's own seclusion comes to an end, and the two can rejoice together. Wonderful, isn't it, to imagine the excitement and joy not only of these two women, but think, I, I, you know, if we take like a, not even just the 50,000 foot view, but the cosmic view, can you imagine heaven itself's joy at these two figures meeting even in the wombs of their mothers as they rush together, hug one another, cry together, 
smile together, laugh together, and yet within their wombs we have John the Baptist, the forerunner and foreteller, the prophetic voice preparing the way for the Lord, and in the and, and just about six months behind, we have the infant baby Jesus growing in the womb of Mary. And there are immediate results. Two immediate results. The most visceral one is the leaping of John the Baptist in the, in the womb of Elizabeth in verse 44. And then Elizabeth is so filled with the Holy Spirit that she pours out a blessing upon Mary. Zachariah is still mute, you remember at this time. And we don't know all that, D, that Elizabeth knows, but surely he you know, wrote it down or, or uh, pantomimed it to her if she wasn't able to read. But uh, it's likely that he wrote down the details of what his uh, vision had been, of what his experience with this angel had been and what God had told him. But Elizabeth knows, with what she knows already, having been instructed by Zechariah, and what the Holy Spirit instructs her in this moment, she knows this is not just a baby stretching or kicking, but this is something different. This was the infant John the Baptist moving with purpose at the precise moment that the greeting of his mother is given to Mary, holding within herself his Lord. In verse 15, Gabriel had said that John would be filled with the Spirit before he was even born. And so here we have this picture of Unborn baby John is the vehicle of the Holy Spirit's witness to the significance of Jesus, even as Elizabeth then will be filled with the Spirit and be a, a, a servant of the Lord in proclaiming blessing upon Mary. Now, so John has been filled with the Spirit, and then Elizabeth gets filled with the Spirit, and she continues this own witness. This is often what the Spirit does. Is he, he testifies uh, on behalf of the Lord, of his truth, of his coming. In fact, this is something the Holy Spirit has done for each of you if you're a believer, that uh, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is testifies to your own spirit, to your own life and heart and mind and soul, that the things of the scriptures are true, that Jesus really did come. And so we have the testimony of scripture, and then the Holy Spirit uses that to draw us to his, his self, to draw us to Christ. And again, we have questions we don't know the answers to. What does it mean that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit? How did that happen? Um, how did the Holy Spirit show his presence? We don't know, but we do know that Elizabeth is able to say by verse 43 and call Jesus my Lord. Elizabeth recognized the baby for who all these prophecies said he was, and that was the Messiah. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, in fact, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Oh, sure, they can utter those words, but they, they don't truly mean it. And here, Elizabeth means it. So the Holy Spirit is working in her to testify that, yes, that baby is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, when it says Lord here, it's, it's simply the word master. And surely, I, I, I don't think it's very clear by the whole ministry of Jesus that they were expecting a Messiah, but they weren't understanding that he was going to be divine. And so there's a lot still that Mary and Elizabeth themselves don't know, but they do know that this is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, what she says in verses 42 and 45, some have called it a, a hymn or a song, but it really isn't. It, it doesn't have the poetry, uh, the, the marks of, of poetry, whether Greek or Hebrew poetry. It's most likely this sort of exclamation of joy, this, um, th this joyous response that really is more in the form of what we would call a beatitude or a blessing. Jesus gives the beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You can read those. But this is where Jesus says things like, blessed are the so-and-so, blessed are the meek, blessed are the 
poor in spirit, blessed are the so forth and so on. It's a blessing. And this was a common type of greeting, a beatitude that was given. And that's really the form that, that Elizabeth uses when she talks to Mary. She gives her a beatitude, two beatitudes in a sense, um, to Mary and Jesus in verses 42 and 45 in particular. She begins with a blessing addressed first to Mary and then to her baby in verse 42. And this uh, is so appropriate, isn't it? Blessed are you, she says to Mary. Blessed are you. Uh, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Some of you maybe grew up Catholic. You probably said this a whole bunch of times, right, when you prayed rosaries or you did the uh, ad, but uh, that's where this comes from, of course. Uh, we're not called to pray to Mary, of course, um, but Elizabeth isn't praying to Mary. She's standing in front of her, and so she's able to say this to Mary, that you are blessed, and it is absolutely true. And it doesn't just mean, like, fortunate, like, you know, that's how we use it sometimes, you know, we, 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 or, or happy, you know, um, you know, when we're on Facebook, we just say, oh, ble- just live in our blessed life, you know, or whatever it is. I saw somebody saying that the other day, it was, uh, they're living their blessed life now, and I was just like, oh, no. Uh, but blessed means more than just I'm fortunate or I'm happy, but in this type of context, blessed always means that God's blessings are being poured out upon you, that it's God's blessings coming to your life, the the divine outpouring of joy upon a person. So Mary is blessed among women, and that is absolutely true because there's this sort of superlative that you are the most blessed among all women. And of course, how could it be otherwise? She was chosen by God to bear the Messiah. What greater blessing could be poured upon a person than this? To be God's chosen vessel for bringing the Savior and deliverer of the nation into this world would be the greatest privilege imaginable. And that is before Mary and Elizabeth even realized the significance of that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. And so if Mary was blessed, how much more her child? No one in all of history deserving more of glory and blessing than he. So blessed are you, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is the baby that you will bear. It's similar to the cry of the unknown woman in chapter 11 that we'll meet later on, who says literally, blessed is the, fruit, blessed is the womb that bore you, Jesus, and the breasts from which you nursed. To which Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now what's interesting there is that Mary is the faithful bearer of the Christ child. But it's And so she is blessed in that sense to be chosen by God to do such an amazing thing. But it is Jesus himself, of course, who will carry the true blessing that he will pour out on people. And Jesus' point there is not to denigrate his mother in chapter 11. It's not to say that his mother wasn't blessed. Of course she was. But what Jesus is saying is blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That there is a blessing that is available that is in some ways even beyond the blessing that Mary received. And it's available for all who hear the word of God and believe, trust and obey what God has said. And what does he mean? He means concerning himself. So this is something fascinating, that though we rightly revere and, and, and we, we give Mary the honor that is due to her as a, just a, as a humble servant of the Lord, who God chose to bear the Christ child in her womb, who God gave this stupendous and miraculous gift of the virgin birth, 
And yet Jesus is, in a sense, saying that if you are those who hear the word of God preached and taught and believe it, you receive a blessing that is better than Mary's blessing. Because Mary's blessing was temporal. It was earthly. In fact, Mary herself was a recipient of the better blessing of believing in her son as Savior more than she was even for being the vehicle of his birth, being the one through whom he would be born. The blessing of Mary's salvation is better for her than even her miraculous conception. And that's really important. This is one area, again, where the Roman Catholic dogma has sort of messed this up because in, in Rome, the idea of Mary being the, the mother of the Lord is the highest honor. And yet I think Jesus would say, no, her highest honor is that on the cross, Jesus died for Mary's sins. And that's even a better honor for if Mary did not believe in Jesus Christ as her Savior, but only as her fortunate son, well, then Mary would spend an eternity separated from him. Mary would spend an eternity uh, being punished for her own sin, experiencing the wrath of God, and yet her son Jesus, who she, yes, was fortunate to bear, blessed to bear, in dying for her sins gives her a greater blessing than she received in the first chapter of Luke. She receives at the end of the book of Luke. And that same blessing is available to all of us if we believe in Jesus Christ. Still, Elizabeth is celebrating the fact that God has now, through her own Pregnancy, and now Mary's has inaugurated this age of salvation. It's a true blessing indeed. But the deeper, and then that's the idea, that the deeper reason for this incredible blessing is not just that Mary was going to be the mom of a great prophet or priest or, or even a king, but that she would be the mother of the prophet, the priest, and the king, the mother of our, all of our Lord, that, uh, again, Elizabeth hardly knows exactly what she's saying. She's saying it, and she believes it, but she doesn't even realize, as often the people who speak in the Bible sometimes don't, how amazing what she's saying actually is. For Luke is here bringing in even a higher Christology than Mary and Elizabeth are thinking about. Yeah, they're waiting for the Messiah, but maybe their expectations of Messiah were much like the apostles, were much like the rest of Israel, that this would be the Messiah who was going to get rid of the Romans and, and, and usher in an age of of earthly salvation for the Jewish nation. And yet, when Elizabeth says, my Lord, when her and Mary are, are in awe of God's greatness, little do they realize that this baby would be the savior of the world, that he would deal not with the temporary issues of one nation uh, in, in history, but would deal with, the, would, would deal with the, the problem of sin and death and the grave and the enemy for all time. And she explains how she knew all this. Because when Mary greeted her, the baby, she says, in my womb leaped for joy. And this Holy Spirit tells her about this. This is not just normal, normal movements. The, the, John the Baptist, without ever having taken a breath, was already pointing out. You know, you almost want it. We want an x-ray. I don't know. Some of the things I, I'm hoping we're going to get in heaven, I don't know that will come true. But I want to see, like, the x-ray of, you know, of uh, baby John the Baptist when Mary is here and he's literally going like, oh, it's like Mr. Like Mr. Cotter, Mr. Cotter, you, you guys know Welcome Back Cotter, some of you? Oh, 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 Mr. Cotter, right? That's how I imagine John the Baptist is. He hears Mary in that greeting and goes, da, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a baby. He's an infant. He's six months in the womb. 
How incredible to think that this is what is happening. And Elizabeth herself finds joy there. The babe in the womb recognized the truth of the situation far more than even Mary and Elizabeth may have. And he conveys this by leaping for joy. Messianic joy. It's the same joy, by the way, the same word that's translated back in in verse 14. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. It's the same. That's the type of joy that the baby John leapt with in Elizabeth's womb. And then she closes in verse 45 with yet another beatitude. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The strongest contrast yet. Again, Zechariah was struck mute because of his unbelief, and Mary is blessed because she believed. Again, where's the emphasis being put? The emphasis is on her simple trust in what the Lord had said. Her faith strong enough to encompass an event that had never happened in history, the virgin birth, and yet she believes. She doesn't understand how it will all play out, but she believes. And we are called to follow uh, her footsteps in belief of what the Lord has said. So this is the heart of Mary's visit. But then Mary herself responds in verses 46 to 55 with a song. If you've been brought up in Anglican traditions especially, uh, some of you maybe, I don't know, you would find the words of this song extremely familiar. They're probably also done, I think, probably in Catholic services or any super liturgical type of environment. But in the Anglican tradition, it's part of the prayer book service for evening prayer. And we call, there's a Latin name for this song that Mary uh, sings. It's called the Magnificat. And Magnificat simply because in Latin the opening word of the song is Magnificat. The ESV translated, my soul magnifies. Uh, but that's that word, magnifies or glorifies. And, and here Mary's words are quite different from Elizabeth's. This is not a loud song of triumph. It's not a, a, a beatitude in that sense. It is really, we get the sense of it as being this quiet song of peaceful, joyous, loving acceptance, humble acceptance and trust in God. And as I mentioned earlier, it's really built uh, and structured similarly to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, extolling the mercy of God and his revolutionary reversal of the situation that the humble followers of God are in both in Hannah's day and now in Mary's day to an even greater extent. This is something that God does, and it's something Luke is going to highlight, how God does these reversals that he takes. You know, this is all over the New Testament, right? He takes, uh, even as we read in you know, 1 Corinthians, right? He takes what is wise to the world, and he declares it to be foolishness. He takes what is foolish to the world and says, this is actually the wisdom from on high. He takes the lowly and the meek and exalts them and brings down the high and lifted up, those who are prideful and arrogant. This is a major theme in Luke, God's reversal of things in the way of the world. And in this song, Mary shows how graciously and humbly she has accepted the privilege that is hers to bear Jesus Christ. And the song shows her gratitude to God for all that he has done for her. Dale Davis puts it like this. He says, Luke sets before us a canticle of praise, Mary's Magnificat. And what does Mary offer praise for? Well, Uh, Davis gives us these three kind of ways to break it down, which I thought were helpful. She gives praise for the privileges that God gives, the patterns that God follows, and the promise that God keeps. The the privileges God gives, the pattern God follows, and the promise God keeps. 
She moves from particular mercies that God granted her specifically to the general tendencies, the ways that God works, how he has shown mercies to me, yes, Mary says, but he is also, but the, the way he is showing me mercy is just indicative of the way that God has always acted in history, in the history of redemption with his people. And then he focuses our, our eyes, God does, and, and Mary through her song does, on this unforgotten covenant, promises that God is now on the verge of fulfilling in the person of Jesus Christ. So what are the privileges that God gives? Well, we see Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Nothing proud here. We shouldn't read the tone that way. She shows how willing she is to be the servant of the Lord, just like she did at the announcement of Gabriel. She displays her joy and her pleasure that although she was just a humble young girl in an out-of-the-way town to an unimportant family, she has been called by God to perform such an honored task. And she realizes that all generations were going to call her blessed because of the position that God has placed her in. But most of all, she acknowledges that it is God the Mighty One who has done great things for her. She will be blessed, but not because she did anything. She will be blessed, why? Because God, who is mighty, has done great things for her. And there's a beautiful parallelism here in the poetry. My soul magnifies, parallels with my spirit rejoices. Verses 46 and 47, we see these these parallel statements. As Mary's emotion moves from praise to exaltation over the Lord himself. And there is again this motif of the leading women of the Old Testament crying out their praise to God. It builds on, you can look these up on your own time, uh, Miriam in Exodus 15, or Deborah in Judges 5, and Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, who all uh, burst forth in praise to God here. Mary then turns from praise for the saving presence of God to his lovely concern for her, even though she comes from very lowly, humble estate. And as so often in Scripture, God uses the humble, not the powerful, to perform his deeds. Remember, this is all in the backdrop of chapter 1 with the opening verses that says, when did this happen in verse 5? In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. That, no, we don't come, you know, it's like in the movie, if we're zooming in on the map and we zoom in on Israel, and who do we go to? Let's go to the king and find him. It's like, no, that's not where this is going to happen. Let's go to the temple and find Zechariah. Well, a little bit closer, but even he responds with doubt. He's not going to get to talk. Who is the, you know, who gets to talk? Who gets to extol the Lord's graciousness? It is not the king. He doesn't get to say a word. It is not Zechariah the priest. He doesn't get to say anything. It is the people who are often marginalized in, in that society of that age. It is these two women, the wife of the priest and a young girl of no consequence as far as Herod would be concerned. They're the ones through whom the Holy Spirit gets to extol who Jesus is. It's a beautiful thing. He chooses the unlikely and the lowly to perform his deeds. Right, is the oppressed and powerless. It is the ones who Jesus meets with. He meets and, and touches the leper and, and he deals with uh, the, the lame and the blind, those who are on the outcasts and marginalized. He sits with tax collectors and sinners. He, he meets with prostitutes and these people who, 
who are on the outskirts of society and he bypasses the leadership. You ever get the sense that if Jesus had gone first and foremost to the Pharisees that they maybe would have embraced him? You know, I like to think of the Pharisees as sort of the, you know, Meghan Markle of the New Testament era, just wanting fame, the Kardashians, right? Wanting fame at any cost. And, oh, if the Messiah is going to come and if, he, and if he, you know, schmoozes us, if he strokes our egos, if, but, you know, Jesus doesn't go to them. He meets first, he's out in the wilderness with his disciples, with that crazy guy, John the Baptist, who eats locust and wild honey. He meets with people on the sides of hills. He, he, has, a, he has a group made of, not of erudite Pharisees who went to the right schools, but he, he, he forms a band of fishermen. But that's who Jesus wants to say. He doesn't go to the proud or the arrogant, the boastful, but he begins here with the lowly. He begins with Mary and, and Elizabeth. Far removed, Mary is, from the leading people of Israel. She would not have made the who's who in Israel the year before. She wouldn't have been a contestant for the time person of the year. And yet, God uses her. And the turning point there is when she confesses that from now on, <laughs> this has changed me. All generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She who is ignored will from this moment be seen as blessed, even as Elizabeth has already recognized. She has become an exemplar of divine blessing, from the unnoticed to the most blessed among women. Not temporary, but it will extend to all generations in the distant future. And here it is. We're still talking about her today and what God did through her. But again, notice how she then takes the emphasis off of herself and puts it on the one who did this. She didn't do it. It was the mighty one. The, the mighty one, uh, Zephaniah 3.17, the, the mighty warrior is the idea here. The warrior who delivers God's people. This is the one who accomplished great things for Mary. Not to her personally, but to what he will do through her simply. She's simply the instrument that he will use. For the glory does not go to Mary, but the glory goes to God. The mighty deeds of the Lord begin with the power of the Most High coming upon Mary in her conception back in verse 35. The mighty one, the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people and will deliver them from the powers of darkness. This is who has done what Mary is experiencing. And so she says, holy is his name. This is how she ends. All this has happened to me, and so many will call me blessed, yes, but it is the mighty one of Israel. It is the mighty one. It is the God of the universe who has done this for me, and holy is his name. It's almost as if she's saying, though generations will call me blessed, oh, yes, I'm blessed, but he's holy. Don't forget that. <laughs> Mary Again, it blows my mind. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit doing this. But again, this is a teenage girl. This is a How do teenage girls handle fame in our culture? And here is Mary realizing that, I don't know how far into the generations she's thinking, but for generations, they're going to talk about her, and she knows this. And yet she says, but don't look at me. Look at God who has done this, because you may call me blessed, but his name is holy. That is a better, that is a unfathomably different thing. Holy is your name. It's what we say in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, be made holy your name. 
Mary sings of the attributes of God and sings of his worthiness to be hallowed as the one who is glorious. That her soul, she begins, magnifies and glorifies the work of God in her. Now she quotes a ton from the Old Testament, especially from the Psalms. In fact, every single verse of the Magnificat, we don't even have time to talk about them. Every single verse is a, is, and a quote or allusion to the Old Testament in some way or some form. It shows what a reverence she had for the word of God, what a reverence her family must have had for the word of God that they studied it, so that she has a Old Testament, she has a biblical connection to what is happening to her, and she can identify it, and it comes out on her lips. And in a way, she teaches us a lot about her own prayer life with the Lord. This is essentially a prayer, it's a, a praise to the Lord. Oftentimes we find it really difficult to pray because we don't know what to pray for and we end up just listing stuff. And I know that's the case because I have a problem with that too. It's really because we don't, study the, we don't study the word of God enough. Mary bases her prayers off of words that God had written already in the scriptures. And I think that's the way we're mainly to pray as well. Because when we pray for a lot of things, we may not know whether we're praying within the will of God. But when we pray what God has already written... That's a prayer that we can trust is what God desires. We don't always know how God will answer those things or when God will answer those things, but they're things for which God has inspired uh, in, in in the scriptures. So study the Bible like Mary. And when you pray and when you speak to God, may that be flavored with the scriptures. May our speech and our prayers and our praises be always alluding to and quoting from the Bible. So we see the privileges that God has bestowed upon Mary. But next we see the pattern that God follows because Mary essentially says this wonderful thing that God has done for me is just another in a long line of ways that God has blessed his people throughout the centuries. She sees herself as simply fulfilling the type of someone like Hannah who bore the first great prophet of the people, Samuel. And as in her day, God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So the key is to fear him. Bridging from fear of displeasing such a merciful God to reverence for all the things that he has done. This is a, uh, the stress on fearing God. We're going to see this throughout Luke. We're going to see it in chapter 12, 18, 23. But it's also in Acts chapter 10, uh, three times. Acts chapter 13, twice. So Luke talks about this idea of fearing God a lot. Fearing God because of his holiness, because of his might and his power. And even she says, mercy extends to those who fear him. So notice what she's doing. Generation to generation will call me blessed. And though that's great, it ain't nothing compared to the holiness of his name. And if you want to know his holiness, if you want, if you want to know the God of the universe, if you want to have a relationship with him, it's not through calling me blessed. It's going to be from generation to generation fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord, trusting him, believing in him. That's the only viable reaction to those who have experienced God's mercy is a right fear. Not a, I'm afraid of what God will do, but fear because he is righteous and holy. We want to please him. The verses 51, 52, and 53 are famous, justly describing this great, again, reversal of the social order by God's work. Mary's words feature three areas of this sinful world sort of a moral area, a political area, and a social area, and all these are part of the mighty deeds which God performs with his arm. 
a common image of God as the divine warrior in Scripture. We know God himself is spirit, doesn't have physical arms or legs. Uh, didn't in all eternity, only the second person of the Trinity, when he comes as a human being in Mary's womb, only then does he have physical arms and legs. But uh, the Father doesn't have arms and legs. The Spirit doesn't have arms and legs. And uh, the, pre-ex- the pre-existent Christ did not have arms and legs. This is what we call anthropomorphism. But it's simply referring to uh, God's strength. And God is often talked about as having arms. And it's just to give us this idea of God's strength, his deeds done with his mighty hands, his mighty arm. And the Jews, of course, would have remembered the many times that God had showed his power. What did God do with his arms? Well, we're told in verses 51 and 52. Scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. Brought down rulers from their thrones. He did that for his people. And he lifted up the humble. People like Mary herself, but all throughout the Old Testament, we have pictures of this. Filled the hungry with good things. Sent the rich away empty. Both literally and physically, he has done that and continues to for his people. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are the ones that will be satisfied by the Lord. In the moral sense, he scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. The proud are always seen as the enemies of God and his people. Pride is the elevation of the self over God, and it's almost a definition of all sin, which is deifying and making much of the self, wanting to be our own God. Deep down inside, the arrogant think only of themselves. They have no awareness of God, no concern for others, and God says he will uh, will scatter those who are the proud. The political revolution, God will bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the humble. These powerful ruling families of which Herod and Caesar would have come to mind, will be ultimately removed from their seats of power by the mighty arm of God. In contrast, the humble, those whom rulers mistreat and persecute, will be exalted. Again, total reversal. The social revolution takes place as he fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty, reverses the order and puts God's people first. Another frequent theme in scripture, God's concern for the poor. So we see that the promises, that the privileges that Mary gets in particular are but an example of the type of uh, uh, the pattern that God has shown throughout the Bible and will continue to show uh, in history. But then it ends on looking at God's promises. Promises made and promises kept. Because at the end of her song, Mary returns to this theme of mercy that God's faithfulness for his people, his future people, who will be saved by the Messiah, will be anchored in his watching over and taking care of his covenant people in all generations. He has helped his people throughout their history, and his covenant, his promises to do so, are coming to pass. Israel is his servant, his people, they're part of his family, and God has in the past and will faithfully continue in the future to care for her needs and protect her. And yet there is a warning here as well. Because only those who are faithful to him will continue to be part of that nation. And while not explicit here, there is an implicit extension to even the church that the apostate nation of Israel will not be considered part of Israel simply by the fact that they are ethnically Israel, but, they will be, but it's those who are grafted into the olive tree of Christ. And many of those will be from Israel, but they will also be extended to the nations. Mary is celebrating the deliverance of God's people 
as he remembers his mercy in the past and extends it into the future for all those who would trust in his promises. And especially in mind is Abraham here. To Abraham and to his offspring forever. In the opening scene of that original covenant that God promised back in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And at the covenant ceremony, he says, look up at the sky and count the stars. So shall your offspring be. And this is how God spoke. And Mary is celebrating those continued blessings through her child. Because she sees in the events that are going to come to pass after the birth of her son, that God will fulfill the covenant promises. And through this child, he will complete what was promised, prophesied, and begun in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and bring it into newness under the New Covenant that the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel looked forward to. And God has indeed kept his promise. Jesus, in fact, did this. And we now have an even richer fulfillment of those promises of the Old Testament because we see how they came to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection that we might have salvation. So this is a glorious song, isn't it? This is a glorious pronouncement of what God has done, what God is doing through Mary and what God will do, which is what we're recipients of even today. And after this, Mary leaves. Mary's return home is told so quietly. We're simply told that Mary remained with her there about three months and then returned to her own home. At the beginning of the passage, Mary enters the house of her relative, Elizabeth. It ends with her going home to Nazareth just before or just after the birth of John the Baptist. In the nine-month period of her pregnancy, Elizabeth spent the first two trimesters in seclusion. And the last three months, she was with Mary before she left. We're told neither why she stayed for as long as she did, nor what they did during those three months. But the point is that through these mothers, the two primary figures of this age of the Messiah are united. The new era of history, the age of salvation, and the age of the Holy Spirit is inaugurated with these two unborn babies together. The two miracles, the one to be born to a mother long past the age of being able to conceive, the other even more miraculously born to a virgin in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 are together. And the stage is set for the single most important period in the history of the entire cosmic universe. For salvation through Christ is the ultimate great reversal, isn't it? That sinners who deserve eternal punishment receive eternal blessing through the work of Christ. Far more than the rich being you know, humbled and the, the lowly being exalted is sinners who have earned death through their sin, given life. And the one who earns life through his righteousness is put to death on the cross. Jesus the righteous punished for the sin of the guilty and the guilty ushered into God's kingdom forever. God in his strength scatters the proud and brings down the mighty and so were some of us. He sends the rich away empty until and unless they realize their emptiness and come to the Savior for food. He exalts the humble and fills the hungry and the thirsty. And Mary declares that this will happen through the Messiah. Paul would later declare, as we read earlier, that it has happened in the lives of those who have been called of God. It's still happening. Consider your calling, Paul says, brothers. For not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being, from Elizabeth to Mary, to any of us even today, might boast in the presence of God. We boast not in anything except, Paul says, in another place, for the cross of Christ. So Mary's song is reminding us that in the past God had come to help Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he will do so ultimately through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. That the blessing God promised through Abraham is finally realized in the person of Jesus the Christ. That God's promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, will carry throughout the centuries from Genesis to the birth of Jesus and continues today for those of us who trust in him. That we are the recipients of God's promises to Abraham. We are part of the generations to come and we are included in the all the nations of the earth that will be blessed. So Mary's song connects to us. And we'll see in the weeks ahead that Mary's song for the nations is a song ultimately of prophecy. It's a song that is really an echo of the song that God's people have been singing throughout all of history, throughout the Psalms and into today. And here's the amazing thing about the way God works. The song is the same. The singers simply change. We sing the same song that Mary sings. We sing the same song that Abraham sang. We sing the same song that Hannah sang. For we trust not in our might, but we trust the mighty one of Israel who does great things for his people. The song is the same. The singers simply change. And today we sing the song of salvation, the song of God's magnificence and the sending of his son to be our savior. May we sing that song this Christmas. May that be the main song that we sing this Christmas. Not a song of ourselves, not a song of this world, not a song of the the great and the mighty but may we sing the song of salvation in our generation and for generations to come. May we teach them how to sing this song as well. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Mary's song because it points us to Jesus, our Savior. And though Mary, of course, is blessed and we'll continue talking about her because she's an integral part of this story, she's integral because of who she had in her womb. Her importance comes because of what you did through her not anything in and of ourself. And that's the same way we feel, Father. That we are blessed. Not because of anything we do, but because of what you have done in your, in your Son. So we may we continue to sing with the chorus of the redeemed from out all, every generation, the song of your salvation. That through Christ you have saved your people from their sins. You have rescued and delivered us from our own waywardness, our own hard-heartedness. And you have brought us to be part of your family. That you have We've been born again, not by the will of man, but by your will. And we are humbled, and yet we are joyous because of what you have done for us. Because you, the mighty God of Israel, have done great things through your mighty arm. And we pray that you would continue your work of doing great things in this world through the salvation of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So that one day this song of salvation would resound over the earth as water covers the sea. And so, Father, help us to make much of and magnify the name of Jesus Christ, even this morning before we leave. And help us to focus upon that this Christmas at our Eve Eve service on Friday.
and throughout not just Christmas time, but every day of the year, Father, may you provoke our hearts to sing this song in myriad of ways, with myriad of tunes, with a myriad of voices and a myriad of languages until your son comes again. And then the redeemed from all of ages will join with the angels and sing this song into eternity. How grateful we are for the gift of, of, of Jesus this Christmas. And help us now to respond in a song to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.